Okay, last week we talked about headship in the home, and I had shared with you, my wife, my wife had saw something in it that I thought was interesting. So those of you who were here last week, um, before I get into this message, let's just go back to the last one, right? You're like, uh-oh, he's going to get Pentecostal on us here shortly. Um, but if you remember that, I talked about how um, Sarah had laughed, and what what I see in that is, is the years of frustration of having missed God's will coming up to now this late season in life. Her laughter is an expression of something that's been born in her own heart. But we also read is that Abraham had laughed. Now, she was rebuked for it, but Abraham wasn't. But my wife reminded me of something I hadn't even thought of when we'd gotten home and that was that if you know the Isaac, their son, do you know what the meaning of Isaac is? Yeah, it's, laughter. it's laughter. So evidently God fulfilling his complete testimony in their life brings laughter into fulfillment through their son. But it's just amazing how when God's finally finished the work, it is another laughter, but it's a laughter that brings glorification to him. And I just thought that was unique. I'd like to share I wanted to share that with you as well. Just kind of a, one of those, I wish I had thought about that when it came time when I was sharing it. So, you know, nobody says that I can't come up here next week and share with you the things that came to my mind afterwards, right? Yeah. So, amen. So we, got, uh, we, we talked about headship in the home last time, and, and we can't help but visit submission in the home this next time again. And I think it completes the whole view of it. If we talk about headship and we don't talk about the submission side of it, and oftentimes the angles. Now, I believe there are probably a number of you already in this place, but there are many others that are not here today who would say this would be something that would be difficult for them to hear because their experience in life has given them something other than what God intended. So this word, if I gave that to a certain, in your context, might sound like um, this, is, this is a broken marriage, this is a broken relationship from the past, and this sounds like um, basically subservienthood to that which really didn't meet God's particular purpose to begin with. And so what I want to do is, is, if I can, I want to give the beautiful picture that God intended from the beginning. If we worked it out God's way, what, what it would look like for all of us. And this would recapture for those of you who have had a broken past, maybe you've already seen this in it. But if you have, if you have and haven't, to recapture the beauty of what God intended. And that's so important because there's such a perversion today, even over the things that God intended. And there are Christians that fall away, and they, they fall away from not only what God has said, but they fall away from what the practice of what God intends. And when that happens, it's devastating. But what I want to remind us of is that despite our world falling away and the darkness around us, that God still does things His way. And when we operate that, it's beautiful. It's magnificent and wonderful, and you wouldn't ask for it to be any other way. So we want to remember that we're not exchanging the truth as God intended it for the lie that's happened as a result of something that's broken me and from my past. And the reason why that is, is because some of us won't enter into the freedom that God has for us in our present because of what it looked like for our past. 
So we're going to get into this submission in the home. Genesis chapter 24. Let's look here in verses 1 through 20. So chapter 24, verses 1 through 20. And again, this is not specifically on the context, but I see this invested in the context of this story. Um, let me pray. Father, thank you for the, the beauty of your word. Lord, the reality of it is, is that what makes it beautiful is the, the practice of it in our life. Then when we take what's written in this Bible and we find that we actually put it into life, Lord, and you adopt your promises to us while we're living it out. God, we see a beautiful picture here. And I love, Lord, what I am about to share. God, I know these are things that are known to many of us because we're, we're Bible students. We read your word. We believe in it, God. But, Lord, there's some very powerful realities here that, God, sometimes get missed. I pray the Holy Spirit is helping us recall truths that we know and also truths that we haven't quite come into. But, Lord, I pray an ultimate picture, not just for freedom, but I pray for service. Because, God, in our lives, we need to be in, a, in such a state that we can live in such a way to honor and glorify your name. And so, Lord, I pray that's on our lips. I pray that's in our practice. I pray that in every way. That, Lord, we don't miss this Sunday. God, what you want to do is a, an act of in freeing us, bringing us to a place of deliverance, and at the same time, Lord, highlighting a new point of growth in many of us. God, we don't want to stay where we're at. We don't want to get to the place where we stagnate in the Christian life because, Lord, we don't have a touch of God on us. Lord, we want to go to the next place, Lord. Whatever that level of maturity is, Lord, help us know what it is, understand it, make it clear, and the Lord begin to walk it out. And God, I want to pray for that this morning because I know, Lord, there is no need for us to let this day pass and miss what you have for us. God, this is our moment with you, God. So, Lord, minister to us. I praise you and thank you for it, God. And I, I pray for marriages right now. Lord, I pray for relationships, God, between uh, fathers and sons and mothers and their children, God, on all levels, Lord, especially in this place. God, would you put them back together again? Lord, and, and those that are together and doing well, God, would you keep them um, completely and entirely inspired to continue to make it better and better. And Lord, I pray, Lord, in 50 years of marriage and even beyond, that we'll hear testimonies of married couples saying that it is better now than it was when we first started. And God, that's an awesome story. And I pray, Lord, for more and more of those testimonies. And Lord, we're going to defend them in Jesus' name. Amen. As you know, I've been spending about the last two months, and you're like, you were? Yes, I've been spending the last two months covering family for the most part. God's word in and what that is to highlight for us and what it means for us being able to go forward. So with that in mind, I want to be able to share this thought. Now, this isn't a story between a wife and her husband. This is a story about a woman who's going to get married, right? And so this is like, this is the moment where the man's like, I hope I get the right one. Right? And she's thinking the same thing. I hope that I get the right one. This is a very, very unique story. And I love how it's all put together. So let's read here in verses 1 through 24. Now Abraham was old and well advanced in age. And this is the New King James Version, if any of you are wondering. And the Lord had, excuse me, blessed Abraham in all things. So Abraham said to the oldest servant of his house, who ruled over all that he had, please, Put your hand under my thigh. I was trying to understand that. Obviously, this is a cultural and a time barrier difference. But this was a part of them 
making uh, swearing or making an oath with one another. And this is a part of the procedure. It's interesting. I won't go any more into that than that. And I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell. But you shall go to my country and to my family and take a wife for my son Isaac. And the servant said to him, Perhaps the woman will not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I take your son back to the land from which you came? But Abraham said to him, Beware that you do not take my son back there. And the Lord God of heaven, who, all, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my family, and who spoke to me and swore to me, saying, To your descendants I will give this land. I will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. And if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be released from this oath. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels, just keep that in mind, okay, as we're reading this, remember that part, and departed, for all his master's goods were in his hand. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made his camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at evening time, the time when women go out to draw water. Then he said, O Lord God, if my master Abraham, please give me success this day and show kindness to my master Abraham. And behold, here I stand by the well of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now let it be that the young woman to whom I say, please let down your pitcher that I may drink, that she says, drink, and I also will give your camels drink. He's asking a pretty tall order there. <laughs> Let her be the one you have appointed for your servant, Isaac. For by this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. And it happened before he had finished speaking. I love that part. <clears throat> that behold, Rebecca was born. Rebecca was born. Oh, the Rebecca who had been born to Bethel, the son of Milcah. The wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her to, uh, with a pitcher on her shoulder. Now the young woman was very beautiful to behold, a virgin. No man had known her. And she went down to the well and filled her pitcher and came up. And the servant ran to meet her and said, Please, let me drink a little water from your pitcher. And she said, Drink, my lord. Then she quickly let her pitcher down to her hand. And gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. And she quickly emptied her pitcher into the trough and ran back to the well to draw water and drew for all her camels. We're going to stop there. I'm going to give you a definition as I did last Sunday for headship. I'm going to give it for submission. Here's, here's not a dictionary definition, but what I feel like God puts on my heart for this. A cooperative union that bestows both greatness and strength, enabling the will of God to be mutually shared and equally entered into. 
It maintains both the unity and the integrity between a man and a woman as they embark on oneness with one another and union with God. So if we think of this as this is not the uh, lesser when it comes to the will of God, but an equal party with the will of God. Oh, absolutely. And so I'm going to say it a little bit slower so that way you can get it. A cooperative union which bestows both greatness and strength. Notice the cooperative union there. Cooperative. I'm not trying, I'm not underneath you, I'm with you. Enabling the will of God to be mutually shared and equally entered into. Mutually shared and equally entered into. It maintains both the unity and integrity between a man and a woman. I love that. Unity and integrity of a man and a woman as they embark on oneness with one another and union with God. Did everybody get that? Okay, we're, we're still getting there. I, maintains unity and integrity between a man and a woman as they embark on oneness with one another and union with God. I have a silent audience. I like that. You're you're more than welcome to say your amens though anytime. Okay, good. So, couple things that we notice about Rebecca. Rebecca is not just beautiful, she's very beautiful. Okay? And the other one is, is that she's a virgin. So she's young and she's a virgin. I think both of those are really important. And one is the, the beauty is it's a natural prestige. That women who are beautiful naturally, <laughs> it's almost like they don't get interviewed for anything these days. It's like all of a sudden they're already recognized. It doesn't matter if you have the talents or the qualifications, you're beautiful. And that's a sad reality, but it is it is the way the world is acting. And it's exploiting beauty. But what you'll see here is, is that she didn't let her beauty get exploited. And I think that's where we find the word virginity. Because here, there's a moral prestige about her life. She's submitting herself morally to the authority of God so that she is not going to be wedded or in union with another man until the right and the appropriate time. So she's still standing in her purity with God. And I just want to say that's most important. When we talk about this part of submission, I think that that's what makes you ladies beautiful is the fact that you are continuing to not hold up the natural prestige, but the moral prestige. Whatever God has given you, you are being faithful to not compromise your life and integrity before God. So here's one, one part of this is we find her filling her pitcher. She filled her pitcher in verse 16. Now the young man was very beautiful to behold, virgin, no man had been with her, and she went down to the well and filled her pitcher and came up. Now you're like, what is the significance of that? Right? Well, that's the point, is it doesn't seem all that significant, but it's very significant, because this is the thing I caught in this. She is faithful to duty, her service, without knowing how God is using her. 
How many of us get discouraged because we feel like what well, I'm doing what I'm doing and it's not going anywhere? We heard a story this morning right there. I'm praying. I'm not experiencing. I don't feel like it's really it's, it's accomplishing anything. Faithful to duty without knowing God is using it. That is the first mark of this purity. I, I also, when I talk about this cooperative union, that's the first mark of the cooperative union, the submissive side of things, that I live in union with God without knowing. I don't have to know the details. I don't have to have the faithful reports. I don't have to have the, uh, what, the knowledge of the outcome to be faithful. I think that's the first point. God is always dealing with the sin. And this is really important because as a baseline, God always establishes faithfulness in natural things first. Go to Luke chapter 16, verses 10 through 11. Flip there with me. Luke 16, verses 10 through 11. Okay, so it says, He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. If therefore you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? The idea is is that you will be faithful in the things that don't gain appearance or even recognition because you know that that matters to God. That's so important to God that that actually precedes everything else. And my feeling of this, the rest of this story, would not have turned out the way it was, or God would have ministered in the way He did, unless she had had this as an established factor in her life. And I just want to encourage you guys this morning, everybody in this place, I want to encourage you to be faithful on your jobs. I want you to be encourage you to be faithful in the little points of integrity where nobody knows but maybe you. Nobody knows what you're doing. Nobody knows why you're doing it, but you're being faithful. You're counting every penny. You're very careful in how you're disciplined. You're very careful in how you, the things that you put in front of your face, the things that you allow in your eye, to your eyes to watch, as well as just the regard that you have over your heart. And I believe that if we'll be faithful there, God's going to move us to the next place. If you remember in the scripture, it says growing from glory to glory. God is in a maturing process. But if we don't go the first step with him, he won't go the second step with us. It's so important to remember that. So here she was making the first step and you're seeing the step of maturity there. And so I'm going to say this about integrity. Integrity presupposes that there is presently, that there presently exists a maturity to advance to greater things because it is already evident in common things. God can move you to something greater because He's already proven you in the little things. God is not moving you to greater things if He can't keep you faithful in the little things. The little things are usually the big things for most of us in all of our lives. God's favor is toward the unworthy, not the unwilling. I want you to write that one down. God's favor is toward the unworthy, not the unwilling. We hear so much about the grace of God, and when it comes to an an end, it seems like it stopped on God's part, and it never furnished anything to our life. We've got to be willing to let God have His place in us. There's anything in your life, and you're like, I know God is dealing with this. 
and you're not going to go the next step, then you're not going anywhere further with the grace of God. He's going to take you with a willing heart. Here's another thought on grace. Grace is undeserved favor, not unreciprocated favor. Undeserved favor, but not unreciprocated favor. Imagine me going over to Joseph today, and I took and I gave him a hundred bucks. And I just went over there constantly, give him a hundred bucks. And there was no reciprocated attitude about that that would show that there was an honesty or an integrity. What if Joseph decided that he was going to take the gift that I had given him and he would use that for profane or sinful uses? Would I be a good man by continuing to give to him when he uses it in that kind of a way? No. And so when we talk about the grace of God, though it's undeserved, it has to be reciprocated or else there's a point in which God has to pull back. Not because he's not gracious and not because he doesn't love, but because there's no growth as a result of it. There's no maturity as a result of it. So we absolutely need to understand this part of the grace of God or we will miss the mark of it. And so many times we see the idea of I failed and God has been gracious and he's been kind. I failed, God has been gracious, he's been kind. And that's the only message about grace that we get. And what we're missing here is, is that sometimes in all of that woodworks, that you decided somewhere along the road you weren't going to be faithful and let God have His way with you. And so now, the only picture you get of the grace of God is the, the kind of grace of God that's there to pick you up when you fail. But what about the grace of God that gives you the power to succeed and move forward without failure? I'm able to do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can, I'm more than a conqueror through Him who loved me and gave Himself for me. That's the kind of testimony that Jesus needs on His billboard. That's what he deserves and is, and is worthy of. So here we go from she filled her pitcher to now she goes to moving from just doing the normal thing that she's doing. She's not anything more than that. But now she begins to minister to this servant of Abraham's house. And so she says to him in verse 18, he comes running to her um, and then he says, now give... Give me drink. And she says, drink my Lord. Interesting that she that that's kind of a term that was used in the Bible times. Drink my Lord. A, a stranger to her, and yet she treats him with this, not just kindness, but respect. You know, this was the first answer that he had to his prayer. And I think that's so amazing to think about that the first thing that he wanted was for her to say to him, not to... to um, give his camel's drink, but to offer him a drink. And I wonder if the reason for that is this question, is this man is looking for a suitable wife for his master Abraham who was in uh, his son Isaac. And he's thinking, from a godly point of view, this I definitely don't want a woman who doesn't have an attitude of respect and kindness when it comes to the headship of her home. So I don't know that that's true because the Bible doesn't say that, but I wonder what motivated him and inspired him to pray, Lord, as a sign, show me that this is the woman because she offers me a drink. I just think that's really important. So this is a thought I have with that. Respectful behavior in this story, I'm going to say in this story, is the first sign of God's favor and hidden providence. It's the first sign that he saw, okay, this looks like this is a good probability. Now, he's also trying to figure out, is there other kind and nice ladies out here, or is this the one, right? 
Because he's not just trying to pick out, does she have the right qualifications? Is she a good woman? Is she just seem to be just right on the, her physique and her attitude outwardly? But what he's trying to find out is, is this the one God has chosen? And does she meet the qualifications of a good woman? Right? And ladies, we have to, you have to remember that. That God's working on both sides of the story for you. He's working on the quality in the woman that you are, the behavior, the, the virtue of the person you are. And he's also working on your relationship and your union to him. And they come simultaneously. We don't miss it. We don't get to miss it on one of those two levels. We've got to be both in God's kingdom. So God develops moral virtues to sustain, to sustain long-term plans. Notice that this is about a marriage that's supposed to be lasting and long-term. So God is putting in, God had put in her already and is exposing what he'd already put in her so that he could have something that was a long-term thing. How many of you know? You've been married long enough, right? Marriage isn't supposed to be a short-term thing. This is supposed to be a lifetime thing. I want this to last my life. I don't want to do this over again. And I don't want to be stuck without the woman I love. And I love, I love that God's brought me 18 years through marriage, and I'm still seeing God's working in my life to make me more the man, forging a man of God in my life. And he's also simultaneously working on my wife and doing things in her. And we don't have the excuse with one another, well, I decided I was going to jump ship because I didn't like the way you behaved. God's called us to be faithful despite. And part of that faithfulness is their motivation to be faithful back. And you say, well, who's supposed to be the first one to initiate that? And I love what Dr. Emerson said in Love and Respect. And if you ever get a hold of something, I would say get a hold of that. And he says that the, the initiation should begin with those who think themselves mature enough to be able to do it. The one who thinks himself the most mature in the relationship. That's where the initiation starts. I thought, ooh, that's tough. Man, that's digging at us because we're like, we'd all like to say I'm the most mature, but we'd also like to say I'm leaving it up to you to be the first one to initiate. And I think that's so important when we see this story here is that God is developing in man and woman. But as we're talking about this, submission goes on the men's side too in, in a certain sense, okay? Because the Bible talks about that. We're submitting toward one another because ultimately we're at one goal, and that's the will of God for our lives. Lasting impact revolves around a lifetime of godliness. If you want it to last, I'm not talking about something that's a fly-by-night kind of thing. If you want this marriage to last, you want a relationship for a long term, you're going to have to have a lifetime of godliness. You're going to have to make that your goal, not your marriage your goal, but your life with God your goal, and your marriage comes underneath that. We get it all messed up, and I see that. I've been in those moments in the heartbreak for individuals, and I see the tears, and I see the anguish, and it's hard for me as a minister, and just somebody who just shares the natural compassion to anybody else on a human level, and to see them, that I'm separated from my spouse, I'm broken in that relationship, and I see the brokenness there. But I also have to minister to them. But the way you repair that brokenness is don't start with the spouse, start with your relationship with God. Something seems amiss there, and most of the time it is. Now, not all the time, but oftentimes there is. And there's this brokenness that comes out of a broken relationship. And you have to have some healthy moments with God. So those individual moments where God is just ministering to you light and reality and sometimes a part of that is the conviction of the Lord and where we missed it. Not to destroy us or demotivate us, but to show us where we can grow, where I can make those changes in a solid direction. Let me just say you this, that I believe in business world. 
And we're not talking about the spiritual world, the business world. One of the biggest problems with the business world is, is people are not willing to take the next step for growth. So they decided, I like the way things are, or I'm, I'm, just, I'm, I'm frustrated with where it's gone, and I, I, don't, I want things to be different, but I'm not willing to do anything different. I'm not willing and ready to do anything different. And that's where it falls apart. So respect and kindness are like the varnish that polishes and protects. Does that sound... So we're not just polishing it and making it look pretty, but it protects it. It seals it. God does not do anything as a temporal testimony in our life. You understand? So He doesn't want to just look beautiful. He wants it to be beautiful and lasting. She says also to Him in verse 19. So now she goes from Him to His camels. Ooh! His camels. Now these are not horses. These are not, you know, <laughs> donkeys. These are camels. Anybody, I mean, I don't have to have much of I don't even have to have a high school education to tell you that's a job. Because when you're actually going to give this animal a drink of water, you're giving them a drink of water, okay? So the idea is, is they can go a long distance and they can store the water, but when it's time to give them a drink, it's time to give them a drink. Now, I have a car that, that when we fill it up, it's about 100 bucks to fill that tank. And that thing likes to drink it up. And I'm like, man, I don't like to pay for this one. Anybody got a better mileage vehicle here? <laughs> well, if I understand correctly, she, well, I, I don't know fully. Like, I didn't look into the history of it. But drawing from a well isn't, isn't, <laughs> it isn't like popping the, the handle open and putting, filling up the bucket. And I don't think the pitcher was like, well, you know, like one of our little pitchers. I think it was like a, it's a huge jump. And you're pouring it in and filling the trough. So she had a huge job ahead of her. So this is the thing. This is where he differentiates between kindness and this is a woman that God has chosen. And I think that oftentimes that when we ask God to do something, we need to ask him to do it big enough so that we know, okay, this wasn't happenstance. This wasn't chance. God made this one happen. Okay, so we asked God to do some amazing things. And here he is. He's on... Red alert. This must. This is a good possibility. She's the one. And then she says to him, "Imagine what that felt like in that moment." He's like, "You know, Lord, would you have this woman say to me, I'm going to give your camels drink? That I'll know for sure." Now, imagine the feeling—not the surprise, but the feeling of this is like the incredible joy in the moment. I, it's happening. This miracle is happening to him. And this is for me, when I was reading this story, the hardest part for me to wrap my mind around is where does the sovereignty of God begin and where does it end? Where does the responsibility of man begin and where does the responsibility of man end? That's the part that's like complexing to me. Where is God actually put, putting a miracle? And this is what I think. This is just James, but this is my feeling, okay? This is my theology in force. But my feeling is this, that she already had she already had the character development done through the early stages of life. She was prepared for this moment. What she didn't have is the knowledge of how to make that appeal to this man. This man prays something that only God knows. And he's the middle party between. God inspires this man's prayer. In other words, these are the things that he should be praying. He doesn't know why he's praying it, but he feels compelled to pray these things. 
Then on the other side of it, she doesn't know why she's doing these things, but she feels compelled to do it. But she's already got the moral development, the character development in her, so that she will actually work out, she will live out what God is inspiring in the moment. And I have to say, that's so important. Because if we're going to grow with God, we have to be the kind of people that God can get us in the furnace, and He can purge our character and purify us inwardly, so that when the Holy Spirit is inspiring us, we will act on what God is inspiring. And only people who have a purified character will go the direction God has. So this is why God knows it's going to happen. God knows it's going to, without being so in control that He forces her into compliance, but without being without control that He doesn't know what the outcome is going to be. I think I just said that pretty well. And I didn't have that in my notes. But I was like, Lord, this is the thing that's really got me. I'm just really ecstatic about this thought. Because if we really walk with you close enough, you can, and you see this hiddenness about her life. I remember I heard a sermon a while ago. You said, behind a good man is a good woman. Guys, we can raise our hands to that. Amen. But you know what? He said something else. He gave this sermon. And he said, behind a good man is a hidden woman. And he brought it out in Scripture. In Peter, where he talks about the hidden woman of the heart. And so there's a hidden woman oftentimes. You don't get to see her, but she's beautiful and she's encouraging and she's everything that man needs in order to hold him up. Ladies, I want to encourage you with that. You don't know how much God wants to use you in that man's way. He's a failure. You know, you might go there. No, he's not. He's a failure. He might be a failure in the moment, but he's not a failure altogether because God's going to work through you to do some powerful things to motivate him in the direction you want. he wants you to go, him to go. So here he is picking her out, and it's just, so this is my thought. God proves his will through a kindness that extends beyond just a gesture. How many of us, we got a lot of gestures of kindness, and people are really touched by that. But what really ministers the truth of God is that God is in his best work, is when God does his best work when he answers someone else's prayer, and how he demonstrates himself through you in ways beyond reasonable doubt. See, he does his best work not by just doing it. He does it in me and ministers to you through that. And you see the sovereignty of God and the wholeness of that picture. Wow, what a picture of what God can do. The two different people have no clue between one another, the conditions, and they're fulfilling them to the T because God is at work between both parties. Beautiful story. So here's my scripture for that. 1 John chapter uh, 3, verses 17 through 18. But whoso has this world's good and sees his brother have need and shuts up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwells the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. See, God does his best work through you. God, God could do it without you. You could just supernaturally impart things. But He motivates your heart according to His will. And He's fulfilled two very important things. So here we see this. He blesses them, inspires you, and magnifies Himself. That's how God gets His glory. That's how He gets His praise. Miracles establish His sovereignty. I want you to listen to this. Miracles establish His sovereignty. God says it's going to be, and it is. Boom, it's over. That's it. And we get so mesmerized by miracles. But I want, to, I want to point something out to you. Purity in a human heart 
establish his moral, his, his moral excellence and his sovereignty. See, miracles just establish his sovereignty. And not, not that there's not moral excellence in it, but when he can perfect you and purify your heart like Rebecca to be faithful, and all of a sudden he's ministering through your life, you can say he's proved his excellence and his sovereignty. And the reason I say moral excellence is this. How does God get you to where He wants you to be without making you do it, but compelling you with such a desire so that you cannot seem to move in any other direction but the one God has given you to go in? I think that's amazing. And the reason I call that moral excellence is because I, here as a father to my children, I'm learning I can't control them. Remember what I said last Sunday. God puts the men in headship. He puts them in a position of they can't control it, but he makes them responsible not for what they can't control, but for what they have influence over. So I don't control my children, but I have influence in the direction that compels them in a certain direction. So what I could say this is that we hear some people say, and it's true, you had ungodly parents and had godly kids. You had godly parents and ungodly kids. And it's like those things are true. But more commonly true is, is that you have exercised your influence in the right direction and it's generally had its mark on their heart in the direction that they should go. In the end, we know it's not under our control. But I would say this, that it's it, because of this, it's excellent when we are not forcing or controlling somebody, but we're compelling them through the way we influence them. We're compelling them through the way we influence them. And so that establishes moral excellence. Because I don't have to force you to love. I don't have to force you to come to church on Sunday. I don't have to force you to read your Bibles. I don't have to do that. I don't have to put anything in front of you and threaten you with the fears, such fears that you're like, okay, I feel like I'm being forced into it. And that's the hallmark of anything that God does. Anything God does has this moral excellence that invites your voluntarily and moral surrender to it. I want to do this. I desire it and I'm willing to because I see that God is worthy of it. And then he does that. And then on top of that, he practices his sovereignty with miracles. And this is to me, this is the absolute top of sovereignty, if you call anything. Because sovereignty in our mind is this. I control you without you having any ability to make any other change. Any other reference to that. But when God does the work, sovereignty in his jurisdiction is, I leave your free will intact and I still find a way to get my plan done. That's sovereignty. Did you guys write that one down? <laughs> Lastly, I didn't read it, but I wanted to save it for last. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 24. When you guys got me all excited, I felt victory in this place this morning. I was like, you know what? There's, there's a good spirit in the air. The Lord is doing something here. And I am just feeding off of that in a moment. In, uh, in Genesis chapter 24, verse 58. Let's look in verse 58 here. Okay, so now you have this story. Now she's like, okay, so he's like, okay, so where, where, do, you, where do you live? And so she's like, well, here, here's where I live. She takes him to um, go see her, her dad, her brother, and her mother. Um, and so she takes him right back to her house, takes care of the man, takes care of every bit of his needs, and they stay the night there. 
And so now he's got one other obstacle, and that is this. He's got to find out, is the family going to let her go? Like, now everything's sealed. This is definitely God's person. But there's one other, there's one other thing to get through. Man, that's so amazing. You know, sometimes the desire is there, the willing, the want, but the actual putting it into action just seems to fall short of. We don't want to miss this part of God's testimony in it. So here we have in verse 58, they said, okay, so they, he asked her, he asked the, the heads of the home, will you let her go? And they said, yeah, we'll let her go, but give her just 10 more days, just 10 more days, and then she's good. And he's like, I'm not staying here for 10 days. And so um, he says, I want to make sure that basically this is God, just make this journey go well. Send me out with her now. And so they said, okay, we'll do this. We'll settle it by asking her. Ooh. Ooh. Did you get that? Nobody gets to make the final say-so. God's calling the shots, but He's given you, are you willing? Are you going to go? Okay? So let's get back to verse 58. And they called Rebecca and said to her, Will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. And that gets me all stirred up. I don't know. Should I, should I share this last piece of information with you folks? You ready for it? <laughs> so I will draw. She says first, I will draw. This is an action affecting my level of comfort. I will go is an action affecting my way of life. See, this is the difference is, is when we talk about submission is, is that a lot of times, folks, when it comes to our homes, we're willing to affect our level of comfort with not affecting our way of life. We're not really ready to make the sacrifice. And you know, listen to me. This isn't about your husband or your wife. This is about how you view God. You're basically saying, Lord, there's no obstacle in front of my obedience to you and nobody is going to lay down anything in front of me that's going to make me feel any differently about that. I don't care about what my spouse is doing in the moment. Yes, I do care about them and I love them, but nothing's going to change this. And so this is powerful because in hers, she's saying the last thing that has to happen for this man to take her home and give this wife that God has planned, and it's so evident, it's got, it's got miracle, it's got... Um, providence, it's got God's hand all over it. How many of us are like, Lord, if it's you, please open the door. Let me make sure that it's you. I mean, you got to make sure that this is like big thing in order for me to know it's you, right? And we're like, I want to know, I want to know that it's you. And so we put out these ultimatums to God and then those ultimatums are fulfilled and then something misses here and then she doesn't go along with him. Imagine that. And he says this to Abraham and Abraham says all the way to the point that she refuses to go. You understand? Then you're free of this oath. This man was. This man is essential in part of what God is doing in Rebecca's life. It's not just posted on her shoulders. You see this, and this isn't the man that she's marrying. And I, if I were this man, I'd be like, Dang, I wish I could take her for myself. You know, if I'm going to get married, this is the woman I want to marry. She's got everything. She's got God's. She's got God revealing Himself behind her, and she's got every character trait that a man could ever want in marriage. 
Maybe he's thinking, second thinking, Isaac's probably not good enough here. I don't know. I will draw as an action affecting my level of comfort, but I will go as an action affecting my way of life. And remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 14, verse 33. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. There's a message, gospel message in this for us as Christians. You know, Jesus didn't just say, hey, will you receive this because of the benefits? Listen to me. She was given jewels. She was given her mother and her family. Were, her brother was like, oh, wow. You know, he's like, yep, she's yours pretty much. He didn't even hesitate on that one. You know what I mean? And so you get the riches, but you haven't got the giver yet. Are we wanting to marry Him? Are we wanting to be sealed in the deal Is that Jesus Christ is the end of the story for us? Or we just want what He has for us? Are we just there because we want the inheritance? Or because we want Him? And that makes the difference in this story. And so when we talk about submission, we're not talking about just a household thing. Like I said, I, I know, I fooled you. I put it how, submission in the home. But really, I was saying submission to God is where submission in the home begins. Because as our hearts are sensitive to Him, we're drawn to Him, our level of commitment comes for Him, then it doesn't take long before we find no other obstacle to that. But if we have our obstacles as God's that obstacle, then we can't love beyond our union and commitment to God. So your level of commitment, listen to me, your level of commitment will ultimate determine, ultimately determine how far God will take you. Your level of commitment will ultimately determine how far God will take you. Some people have halted somewhere in the middle of this path and they're discouraged, unhappy, and they're discontent with the Christian life because they didn't go all the way with what it means to be a Christian. When we got saved, God didn't just deliver us from the eternity we would have had. He delivered us from ourselves. He's saving you from you. He's making you a new man that fits his, and, and woman who fits his actual purpose and plan in life. We are as endowed with his riches as we are abandoned to him. So the more that if you'll finish reading the story, you'll recognize the further, the closer she got to Isaac, the richer she became. And remember the scripture in Ephesians that says, He is rich in mercy for the great love wherewith he loved us and gave himself for us. The power of the Christian life is, is that the part that's the voluntary and that's the commitment that you have. And remember this wholeness of the story. There can be no breakup in the wholeness of what we're talking about. When we decide we're going to let loose on the end or the beginning, this will be an imbalanced thing and we will find discouragement and frustration with it. The beauty of what God does is it works only the way that he intended it to work. There's no other way for it to, to work here. And so when we do it God's way, it works. When we find some other way, we find frustration. And, you know, I believe, just as I said last, I think it was last week, God does that on purpose. He allows for the frustration with intent for it to be, bring correction. I don't like the way this turned out. And if we decide we don't like the frustration, we decide we won't be corrected, we don't get to go any further. This stops right there. I'm done. I don't have any more to share with you. I'm grateful that I was able to share just that with you. I pray that this is been an inspiration and an encouragement. I pray a conviction as well, because God wants to grow us in new new places. I want you to ask yourself just this one question as we're coming to a close here, and as we have the worship team come up. 
want you to ask yourself, is there something? Is there something that you need God to have His place in? Come on, folks. If we're going to be real here, I bet we could all say today, I have a point in my life I just need God to get in on. And that's all we're addressing in the moment. I said all this to get you to think about that one thing, right? Because I want you to do something about that one thing. I don't want you to sit there. I don't want you to leave here and not let that and let that one thing go unaddressed anymore. I would say pray about it and then also ask the Lord what it is that you want me to do about this and move forward in advance, even if it's in the smallest point of obedience. Jesus said something that was amazing. He said the seed, a mustard seed, out of a mustard seed would produce great results. A mustard seed of faith, you could cast, take this mountain and pull it down into the sea. What about a mustard seed of obedience? Because if it's faith and it's not linked with obedience, maybe it's not really faith. Can I say that? So we're just asking you to take that one next step of obedience. I don't know what it is for each of us, but I know that it's, it's the difference of what God's going to do and how that mountain is going to change in the world around you when you decide to move in God's direction. So as they're singing, I just want to invite you to come to the altar. Come and lift your spirit before God. Don't leave this place without the Lord touching you in that particular area. And then I'm going to say for the rest of the week, walk out in obedience. I don't know what it is, but I know this. You step out in obedience, no matter how small it is, God will always meet you in that moment. Okay?